You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here. Welcome in. We. Episode 425 for the podcast. It is Swimming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is... Well, I don't really know what it is. Is it Monday? Is it Tuesday? I don't know exactly when I'm dropping this podcast, but so much college football to talk about. Yes, we are talking solely college football from here on out. So much to discuss. We will obviously open with the Georgia Clemson Slugfest. My dogs, my pick to win the national championship, taking care of Clemson. What does it mean? Is it finally Georgia's year? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Clemson. We'll talk about uh, maybe the most interesting result of the day, UCLA taking down LSU. UCLA, fight, fight, fight. Uh, The entire integrity of the Pac-12 is on the line, and UCLA gets the win. Also, maybe as important, what does it mean for Coach O's future at LSU? We'll take another quick break. We'll come back. We'll hit on the other big topics from the weekend. Bama dominates Miami. Penn State wins an ugly, ugly game against Wisconsin. I thought Texas looked really good. I thought Kentucky looked really good. So we will get into all of the other topics of the weekend. But as I said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is, how about my dogs? That's right. Georgia Bulldogs yelling and screaming. I know I'm going a little bit crazy. I know it's like a Monday and you're driving around and it's Labor Day or it's Tuesday and you're at work and you're like, why is this guy screaming? But I'll tell you this, I picked Georgia to win the national championship two weeks ago. I got shredded by the entire internet. I thought at least Georgia fans would come to my defense. No, 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 no. Everybody's saying, Torres, what are you doing? You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. Georgia, you really trust JT Daniels? You really trust Kirby Smart? Uh, Yeah. How about my dogs? 10 to 3 final score against Clemson. And it was just, listen, before you even get into the game, it was just quintessential, beautiful, tear rolling down my cheek college football. Okay? This is why, like, that game was everything that we love about college football. We had a full stadium in Charlotte, half of it is wearing orange and white half of it is wearing red black and white we have 
again, a full house, uh, full fans, no limited capacity. Everybody's coming in. We have tailgates. And more importantly, we had a great product on the field. And on top of that, it felt like the old school college football so much on the line when those two teams took the field. Doesn't mean that if either one, if they lost, that their season was over, but you put yourself so far behind the eight ball losing that game. And that's exactly what happened. So we had an incredible day of college football capped by just an unbelievable atmosphere in Charlotte between two teams that clearly came to play and Georgia gets the victory 10 to 3. In terms of the game itself, we'll get to Georgia's offense in a minute. But listen, the story of the day for Georgia, and I think the story of the day in college football was, how about that Georgia defense? Because I think you could look across college football. Alabama, that offense was unbelievable. UCLA, Chip Kelly has that thing humming. Wisconsin's defense looked good. Penn State's defense looked good. But when you're talking about one individual unit that stood out above everybody else, and yes, I just said unit here on an early Monday or Tuesday or whenever you're listening, I just said unit. But uh, one unit that stood out, it was Georgia's defense. I mean, this wasn't just a classic performance. This was like an iconic all-time, old-school performance that we simply do not see anymore in modern-day football. You look at the stats, they are mind-blowing, okay? You look at the stats, offensively for Clemson, they just could not get anything going. Clemson, a school that produces one first-round pick after another after another. Think about all the – Trevor Lawrence, Deshaun Watson, Mike Williams, uh, DeAndre Hopkins, Sammy Watkins, all these guys that have come through. 180 yards of total offense. But beyond that, not just 180 yards of total offense, how about this? 23 rush attempts – and, yes, I paused for dramatic effect – 23 rush attempts, two total yards rushing, okay? Um, when I say two total yards rushing, that equates to 0.1 yards per rush. Now, I know that number's a little bit skewed because sacks count against rushing totals, but the bottom line is Georgia held Clemson, one of the great offensive programs in all of college football over the last 10 years, to 0.1 yards of total offense. Do you know how hard that is to do? Do you know how incredible of an effort it was from Georgia? Again, not just a good effort, not just a great effort. We are talking an iconic effort to open the season. And when I come out of this game, when I look at Georgia, I am just telling you, I know that they have a checkered past. I know that they've fallen short on the biggest stage. I know that at some point they are going to have to get through Alabama in the SEC or maybe Texas A&M this year. They're going to have to get over the mental hurdles that, that have gone on within the program. But I am telling you, this is as good of a shot as Georgia has ever had coming into a season to win a national championship. Now, I can't say it's a better shot than 2017 when they were literally two plays away from winning it all when they had a lead at halftime, but this is as good of a shot in September, I believe, as I have ever seen Georgia to have a national championship. And I think you can also say coming out of Saturday, outside of maybe Bama, who just obliterated Miami, who was more impressive than Georgia? The answer is nobody. And I really believe that, again, it's all there. 
Georgia is in the championship conversation, and I think after Saturday, I'm telling you, the odds have already gone down in Vegas. I have already seen it. I would rush to the window. I would start getting those long-term bets in on Georgia to, to compete for a national championship. I really think they're that good. Now, I know what a lot of people will say. Uh, Torres, did you watch the game? Well, first of all, yes, I watched the game. I was on Fox Sports Radio National Recap Show, so I would hope I watched the game. And everyone's going to say, oh, they only scored 10 points. And the only offense, the only touchdown came on defense. And I get that. You're not wrong. What I would also say is a couple things. If you just compare, first of all, if we agree that those are two of the elite defenses in college football, there's others. Alabama's up there. Texas A&M is up there. Maybe Washington out on the West Coast, whatever. But if we agree those are two of like the three or four best defenses in college football, can we also agree that Georgia's offense looked much more comfortable relative to the competition? Weren't great, but they were much more comfortable. 256 yards of total offense. JT Daniels, 22 of 30 passing. So he was comfortable when he had time in the pocket. He was completing short throws. And I think that was the game plan. We know Georgia doesn't have wide receivers that are going to burn you deep, throw it 60 yards downfield. But they want to keep it short. They want to keep moving the change. And they did that. Also over 100 yards of rushing offense, which is something Clemson had two yards of rushing offense. Georgia had 121. So when you sit there and say, well, they didn't score an offensive touchdown. Yes, but I think we can agree that they were much more comfortable on offense. And it's worth noting, this was the best defense that they will see all year. They will not see a better defense than the one that they saw at the very least until the SEC championship game where they will play either Alabama or Texas A&M. And so when I start talking about Georgia as a national championship contender, I know it sounds early. I know it sounds presumptuous. But think about how everything is working out in Georgia's favor. And by the way, this is why I picked them to win the national championship. Because in college football, what you have to understand is this. It's not always just, do you have the best team? We know that there's always going to be, in this era, three, four, five teams that have a legitimate shot. And most years, they're all the same. Most years, we know. It's Oklahoma, Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Ohio State, and then there might be one other one in any given year. It might be LSU, it might be A&M, it might be Florida, it might be, I don't know, Penn State, maybe Notre Dame, whoever. But I bring it up because so much of college football isn't just, are you good enough? It's how does everything else break your way? And for Georgia to get through this game, it's Moses parting the Red Sea. Because if you look at their schedule, it is totally manageable going forward. And again, this is why I picked Georgia to win the national championship. Look at the schedule. Next week, UAB, South Carolina. Down the road, they have Arkansas. They have Auburn. They have Kentucky. They have Florida, Missouri, Tennessee, Georgia Tech to end the season. You know who's not on their schedule? And I've said it all month, and I hope you've been paying attention. You know who's not on their schedule? Alabama's not on the regular season schedule. Texas A&M is not on the regular season schedule. LSU, who we could probably just disregard at this point, they're not on the schedule. Ole Miss, who at least can score a million points, is not on the schedule. And so when I look at this team, this was the hurdle that they had to get over if you're Georgia. Like I said, I didn't even think they were going to win. I picked Clemson to win the game. But I thought Georgia would be able to win 11 straight after this to put themselves in position to be playing for a playoff berth at the SEC championship game. But now, who is there to worry about? Like I said, no A&M, no Bama, no LSU, no Ole Miss. Uh, Auburn, I think they'll be fine. I like Brian Harson, but it's going to take some time. Uh, Florida is down. 
Kentucky might be the second best team in this division. And I just, I'm sorry, I love Kentucky. I love Kentucky fans, but asking Kentucky to beat this Georgia team, I just don't see it. And so when you factor in that this was the best defense that they're going to see all year, that the schedule is so manageable. I didn't even mention Florida is down. I don't know if they have their quarterback figured out yet. Uh, Tennessee is breaking in a new first-year head coach. South Carolina is breaking in a new first-year head coach. The road is paved with gold for Georgia. Everything isn't working out. Everything is fine. You just face the best defense you're going to face. You have the schedule, and I would add this too, and I think Kirby Smart kind of alluded to it in the post-game press conference. This wasn't even the best version of Georgia that we could potentially see. Remember, Georgia, never forget, Georgia was without a ton of key players. Their best red zone tight end, Darnell Washington, you don't think they wanted him on Saturday? Wasn't available. One of their best corners, Tyke Smith, not available. You don't think you don't want him? There's a chance Eric Gilbert, this five-star superstar wide receiver, comes back. Think they wouldn't love to have him? So the point I'm trying to make is think about it from Georgia. You got the schedule. You got past the toughest game on, on your schedule. You played the toughest defense you're going to face all year. I would also say JT Daniels, for all his criticism, he's probably the best quarterback in the SEC right now. If not him, then Matt Corral, certainly more experienced than so many of the guys that he is going to be going up against. So I love Georgia, and Georgia fans, if you want to celebrate, have a ball. This is just the beginning. We're just getting started. I understand the history of Georgia. I understand you don't want to put the cart before the horse. You don't want to get too excited. But I'm just telling you, there is nothing on this schedule that is going to slow them down into the SEC championship game. And we're going to talk about it in a minute with Clemson. But they're also going to have the trump card of beating Clemson if they do get tripped up in the SEC championship game. We'll talk about that right now with Clemson. But I just want to give Georgia so much credit. Great effort. Great game. And this was just, I mean, if you're a Georgia fan, after all the losses to Bama the last few years, all the losses to LSU, this one has to feel really, really, really good. Enjoy the heck out of it. You guys deserve it. All right, let's switch gears and talk about the other side of this mega showdown between Georgia and Clemson. That is, of course, the Clemson Tigers. And it's interesting, and we're going to talk about it in a minute with LSU and UCLA, but when when we talk sports, oftentimes the more interesting story comes from the losing team. I don't know that in this case I totally necessarily believe that strictly because of the fact that Georgia, this win means a lot for Georgia. Georgia needed to win this game, not just for a resume or for this or for that or for the other thing, but also to just kind of quiet the demons of losing these big games on big national stages. If you remember, I had Cole Kublik on this show a few weeks ago and we talked about the idea of them struggling in these big games. What does it mean for the program, etc.? So I, it was huge for Georgia but from Clemson I think you can argue that the results are just as interesting not that there's not time for Clemson to make things up not that there's not time for them to make the playoff win the national championship but I think there are some macro things that came out of this game that you should be worried about if you're a Clemson fan and I think those macro things then become bigger picture things for the entire season that you have to worry about as well first of all when it comes to the game itself I just talked about it with Georgia but it's not just that you lost the game you got embarrassed and it's funny, like I'm a college football connoisseur. I love this sport. And when I go back and think about the last three, four, five, six, seven years of this era under Dabo Sweeney where, where Clemson has constantly been in the national championship conversation, I can't really think of a game 
where they were dominated in one aspect of the game quite like they were against Georgia on Saturday night. They have, they've had bad games. You know, they lost to LSU a few years ago where Joe Burrow threw the ball all over the field against them, and we'll talk about Joe Burrow later when it comes to Ed Orgeron. But, you know, I don't remember a game where they were just completely dominated the way that they were. We don't have to, again, go over the stats. Well, you have 0.1 yards rushing against any team. That is not good. So there's that aspect of it. Is It's just it, you looked bad against a great Georgia team. But again, I think you can argue, well, that's the best defense you'll play all year. You have time to improve. Where I would be concerned if I was a Clemson fan, though, is this. This game continues a trend from last year that I don't think a lot of people realize. Because Clemson was so good, because they made the playoff, because outside of that game against Notre Dame, they really did not have any hiccups until they played Ohio State in the college football playoff. What I don't think a lot of people realize is they're rush game was not very good last year, and their offensive line was not very good last year. How about this? Clemson ranked 75th nationally in rush offense last year, 11th in the ACC. Here were some teams that were better than Clemson last year rushing the ball. South Carolina, which fired Will Muschamp. Arizona, which fired Kevin Sumlin. Uh, Duke, which is about to fire David Cutcliffe by the end of this year if they haven't already. And so when you look at Clemson last year, this was a problem that got overshadowed by Trevor Lawrence and by a weak ACC schedule. And it looks like as though it has not gotten very much better this season. Now, the good news is, again, Georgia is the best team that you are going to play all year, at least until the college football playoff, then all bets are off. But I, I, And so there is some positivity to it. You have time to get right. You have time to get things fixed. You have time to get things worked out. But there is also kind of a negative side to all this, and that's this. Your schedule is soft as Charmin toilet paper, baby, and I would be concerned if I was a Clemson fan. Because even if you run the table, even if you finish 12-1, and win the ACC, and make the college football playoff, are you really going to be prepared for the teams that you're going to play there? And I know that some years that narrative is overblown, but this year I don't think it is. You just got embarrassed by a very good SEC team that might not even be the best team in the SEC. So you have that on your table is that you weren't, I don't want to say you weren't comparable to Georgia because your defense was awesome too. Your defense held Georgia in check, but you were miles behind everything that Georgia was doing defensively. And I just don't know that playing NC State and Pitt and uh, Louisville is going to get you ready for whatever the ultimate stage is, which you hope is the college football playoff. And of course, beyond that, winning a national championship. Where my bigger concern would be, though, if I was a Clemson fan, is this. Is your schedule even going to allow you to get in the playoff even if you win all these games? And I know it sounds stupid, and I, you know, I got this pushback on social media, and I get it. It feels dumb to talk college football playoff on September 4th, 5th, 6th. I get it. It feels idiotic. Why would we even have that conversation? Except here is the thing. If you look at Clemson's schedule, and you look at who they will be competing for playoff bursts with, they are going to have their backs against the wall in terms of putting together a resume that is going to impress pollsters, voters, and of course that committee come time to pick those four teams for the college football playoff. Why is that? Well, it's because as I told you before the game, Clemson does not have a single game left the entire regular season against a team ranked in the top 25. They don't. There's 25 teams that were ranked in the preseason. Zero of them are on Clemson's schedule going forward after this Georgia game. They don't play Miami. They don't play North Carolina. They don't play Virginia Tech from the other division in the conference. So when you look at their schedule, the toughest games that they have left in the regular season, NC State, 
Pitt, Boston College. I'm not making that up. Pitt is like a, a less than a field goal favorite at Tennessee this weekend, which might be like the ninth best team in the SEC. Pitt is a field goal favorite. And that is the second best team on Clemson's schedule probably the rest of the year. And Clemson realistically probably will not play another 20, top 25 team the rest of the season. Beyond that, the two teams in the other division that are ranked, Miami and North Carolina, probably not going to be ranked come Monday morning. And that causes its own problem. Because I think there was always this thought in the back of everybody's head, well, even if you lose to Georgia, I mean, you're going to get North Carolina in the ACC championship game. You're going to get uh, Miami. You'll be fine. You'll figure it out. Everything will be okay. And you'll play a decent team once you get there. Well, North Carolina took a loss to Virginia Tech. And Miami got destroyed by, of course, Alabama on Saturday afternoon. And so when I look at who Clemson will potentially be playing in that ACC championship game, it's just going to be another lousy team that probably has three or four losses. And so you look at Clemson's resume by the end of the year, you're looking at a bunch of three, four, five loss teams that Clemson is going to be playing and saying, hey, put us in the playoff for beating these crappy teams, okay? And I think that's going to be a tough sell if you're Clemson, especially relative to who you could be battling with for college football playoff spots. Let's say Clemson goes undefeated from here on out. Let's say they go 12-1. and but their best wins are against a crappy North Carolina team and a crappy NC State team and a crappy Pitt team and whatever. And you're going to compare that with a, you know a, an Ohio State team that's going to have to go through Penn State, who's pretty decent, Wisconsin, who's pretty decent, Indiana, who's pretty decent. Ohio State's going to play three or four teams that are going to be ranked. They might not be great. They might not be Georgia, but they're going to play three or four teams that are ranked. How about Georgia? Imagine if Georgia goes undefeated, gets to the SEC championship game, and loses to Bama. How can you argue that Clemson deserves to get in over Georgia? What if there's a one-loss SEC team that doesn't even make the SEC championship game? So Georgia goes undefeated, they win the SEC, and Alabama somehow gets left out of the, out of the SEC championship game at 11-1, or Texas A&M does. You don't think Texas A&M is going to have a more impressive resume than Georgia? You think that Alabama, potentially, if they lose the SEC championship game at 12-0, isn't going to have a more impressive resume than Clemson? I know I just said Georgia, I meant Clemson. So it's an interesting scenario is if I'm a Clemson fan right now, I'm worried because I didn't like what I saw. I saw a big picture issue that has cropped up over the last couple years. It is not better, and I don't think this schedule is, one, going to get me ready for the games that matter later in the year, and two, I might not even be able to get to the playoff even though I went out. So it's something to think about with Clemson, something to consider, and something that we're obviously going to continue to talk about on this podcast because, look, as the playoff increases, as the uh, you know excitement around the playoff increases, there is going to be a lot of conversation about this team and about their resume. And I'm just telling you right now, none of it is very good for Clemson. All right, what I want to do now, take a quick break, come back, and I want to talk about that wild, wild, wild UCLA game, mega ramifications for UCLA, mega ramifications for uh, for for LSU and Coach O. Coach O, I'm just telling you, he is feeling the heat right now. We are going to come back and talk about that. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back. And uh, one, glad we got this, this first weekend under our belt. So much to talk about, so much to discuss. And I do want to switch gears. Because Georgia Clemson was great, and it was huge, and it was mega, and it does have big-picture ramifications. But when you talk about a spicy meatball in terms of big-picture ramifications, I don't know that anything tops UCLA-LSU on Saturday night. The, the conversation coming from both sides is absolutely fascinating. So let's get into it. Final score, UCLA 38-27. to And I'm sorry, 
but I know that I said I liked UCLA coming into this season. I know I said I thought they could overachieve, but I am shocked by how this game went down and the fact that UCLA won. And look, I'm not stunned that UCLA itself won this game, okay? I thought there was at very least a possibility, as I just said a minute ago. If you listen to this podcast, you know that I liked UCLA coming into this year. Hate to brag, but Kirk Herbstreit clearly stole my take. He picked UCLA to win the Pac-12 South right after I picked them to be really, really, really good. He must listen to this podcast. Yes, I'm totally kidding. But it's clear that from the beginning, I've thought UCLA had a chance to be really good this year. But when I talk about really good, what I was really talking about was not as bad as they've been over the last couple years because I think we all know that for the most part, like the Chip Kelly uh, experiment so far to date at UCLA really has not worked. Uh, three and nine in his first season, four and eight in his second season, last year in a COVID shortened season, three and four. But again, if you listen to the podcast, you know that I told you they should have beat USC, which was five and zero oh at the end of the regular season. They should have beat Oregon up in Oregon. They easily could have been about a five and two team, finished three and four, and I thought they were going to be really good this year. But when I say I thought I was, they would be really good, I thought we were talking 8-4, and four, they get to a bowl game, they build some momentum, they compete at the top of their division, the Pac-12 South title. I did not expect to see what I saw on Saturday night. And that, to me, remains the single biggest shocker from Saturday night and from really Saturday in college football at all is the ease with which UCLA did what they did. Now, I thought they could compete. I thought maybe they could win. I did not think they would move the ball up and down the field against LSU the way that they did. The reason I did not pick this game, the reason that I decided to stay stay away is because I really did wonder. We know what the Pac-12's reputation is. We know uh, what they may or may not be capable of doing on a national stage. Was UCLA a team that I think we all think is finesse and how tough are they really? Are they going to be able to move the ball up and down the field against an SEC defense, which admittedly was not good last year, but we all know that the SEC and LSU specifically recruits at an insane level. Well, as it turns out, the answer was yes. UCLA was awesome. They finished with 483 yards of total offense. And what blew my mind was the balance with which they did it. 260 yards passing, 223 yards rushing, over five yards per carry when they moved the ball, basically blowing that LSU defensive line off the ball. And I'll tell you this, I don't claim to be an X's and O's savant game plan, whatever. But the thing that I saw from football people on Saturday night was the balance with which UCLA played. And that was what struck me in watching that game. They had the better game plan. They executed. They did this. They did that. They ran the ball. They passed it. And they they were the better team. I don't think there's anyone that came out of that game not believing that they were the better team. Now, that's really bad for LSU. We're going to get into LSU in a minute, but let's stick with with UCLA because I think, to me, this game now completely changes the trajectory of what I thought they were capable of this season and as a program. In terms of this season, like I said, I thought they were going to be rapidly improved. I thought they would be 8-4. and four. I think every single UCLA fan on the planet would have happily taken eight and four seven and five we go to a bowl game and we're starting to build something because there was a lot of trepidation there was a lot of we need to wait and see with UCLA with Chip Kelly and now the question was what was the ceiling for this season were they finally going to get to a bowl game were they finally going to show market improvement or was this Chip Kelly thing just a total bust well with the win on Saturday not only are they two and oh 
But you start looking around, and I think the entire trajectory of UCLA football has changed. First of all, they just look really good. Like I said, perfect balance of run, perfect balance of pass. And oh, by the way, the defense did a pretty reasonable job of shutting down what should be a pretty good LSU offense. Held them under 400 yards total offense, held them to 49 yards rushing. So you talk about those great defensive linemen in the SEC. How about the defensive linemen in the Pac-12 at UCLA holding LSU to 49 yards of total rushing, two yards per carry for LSU. But I think when you're looking at UCLA, it's not just the fact that they took care of LSU. Look at the rest of the Pac-12 on Saturday. I mean, that is the funny part about what happened on Saturday. The Pac-12, which is this national punching bag, actually as a conference had a really, really, really bad day. But the thing was, nobody realized it because, oh, by the way, UCLA took care of business, did what they had to do against LSU, an SEC team, a team that is two years removed from a national championship. And so because of it, I don't think that anybody even paid attention to what happened uh, with the rest of the conference on Saturday. But you look at the rest of the conference, it was kind of a disaster for the Pac-12. Washington, which was ranked in the top 20. I'll be honest, Washington was a team I didn't really get. They only played, I believe, three or four games last year during the COVID season. They weren't very good. They had a first-year head coach. Remember, Chris Peterson retired. Um, But, you know, Washington lost to Montana, okay? I'm sure Montana at the FCS level is very good. It's still Montana, though. Washington loses to Montana. Washington State loses to Utah State. Uh, Oregon State loses to Purdue in, in, in a matchup of two teams at the bottom of their conferences, but a game that Oregon State probably could have won. Uh, Who am I missing here? I'm missing somebody big. Stanford stunk. Cal loses to Nevada. And so you look at what happened across the Pac-12. I should mention, by the way, Oregon nearly lost to Fresno State, easily could have lost that game, and their best player, Kayvon Thibodeau, it does not appear as though is going to play against Ohio State this weekend. On top of that, USC, they take care of business against San Jose State, but if you saw that game or if you at least know what happened in that game, they had to rally late, put up 17 points to put San Jose State away in the fourth quarter. And so I'm bringing it up with UCLA because all of a sudden, Now the ceiling with this team is completely different than what it was 24 hours ago. 24 hours ago it was go 7-5, go 8-4, go to a bowl game. We'll build you a freaking statue, Chip Kelly. But why does it have to stop there now? I'm not saying this team is going to the college football playoff, okay? To be abundantly clear, I'm not saying playoff team. As a matter of fact, I think they actually have a pretty tough game against Fresno State this coming Saturday at the Rose Bowl. At the same time, though, you look across the rest of the Pac-12, I don't think it's unreasonable to say 10-2. and I don't think it's unreasonable to say Pac-12 championship game. I don't think UCLA fans, and I know you listen. Shout out to the UCLA fans. I know we got a few that listen. I don't think it's unreasonable to say win the Pac-12 championship, play in the Rose Bowl this year. And this was a team that we were trying to figure out, could Chip Kelly go 6-6? and So great day for UCLA, great day for the Pac-12. And let me find, or great day for Chip Kelly. Let me finally say this. It was, in fact, a great day for the Pac-12 because, listen, I I said it a minute ago, it actually was not a great day when you look at the losses on paper. Again, Washington losing to Utah State, uh, Nevada beating Cal, Stanford getting crushed by Kansas State, USC not looking great, Oregon not looking great. But the Pac-12 for years, for years, 
has been dying and trying to do everything they can to get a win like this, to get a win on a national stage in a big game against an opponent that everybody knows. And you can criticize LSU for a lot of things because I don't think they're very good. But when you look at LSU, they are still the name brand. They are still Coach O. They are still a team that won a national championship less than two years ago. So for that team to come into Pac-12 country, for there to be a full house at the Rose Bowl, and I know we criticize UCLA fans, and justifiably so, but they showed out, LSU fans showed out, we had a great environment for college football. To get all that and to have UCLA not only win, but to clearly be the better team. I don't think you can articulate that enough. For UCLA to clearly be the better team, it was a monster day and a monster moment for the Pac-12. So shout out to the Pac-12. Shout out to Chip Kelly. This was a school that has been itching for a moment like this. And I'll take it a step further. It was a conference that was itching for a moment like this. We'll see if it could continue. Like I said, Pac-12 has a few marquee games this coming weekend. Oregon against Ohio State. Washington against Michigan. And then on top of that, I don't think UCLA is out of the woods just yet because Fresno State coming to the Rose Bowl is not, a, it is not an easy game for them to win. And with that said, you know what we got to do. We got to switch gears. Because as the old saying goes, sometimes the bigger story is in the losing locker room. And I don't think there is any doubt that even though I just rambled about UCLA for 8, 9, 10 minutes, I think the bigger story is LSU, Coach O, and what the future of this program is and the future of Coach O with this program. Uh, not saying he's going to be fired tomorrow. Not saying he even deserves it. But I am saying the conversation is a lot different today than it was uh, a week ago, a month ago, six months ago. And, you know, and with that said, Let's switch gears to the other side of the sideline, the other sideline at the Rose Bowl on Saturday night. Let's talk a little bit about LSU. Because as much fun as it was to just spend eight, nine, ten minutes talking about UCLA and what this means for the Pac-12 and what it means for Chip Kelly, there's a saying in my business that sometimes the better story is in the losing locker room. And what that means is as great as the wins are, as great as the victories are, as great as it is to see UCLA running around with the flag across the field, all that stuff. The losing team usually is the more interesting story. I don't think there's any doubt that LSU is the more interesting story coming out of Saturday. And I'll just tell you this. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. But Saturday really does feel like the night that the LSU fan base officially turned on Coach O. And I don't know if there's any way for him to come back from this. There's still time. Things can change. But he is now fighting an uphill battle. And the reason he's fighting an uphill battle, it really goes back to last year. Because it's easy to forget, but 2019, they have that incredible national championship run with Joe Burrow, with Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator who's now with the Carolina Panthers, with Dave Aranda, the defensive coordinator who's now the head coach at Baylor. Incredible run, incredible talent, incredible team. And it's easy to forget that last year they were really, really, really bad. And when I say really bad, I don't mean like, you know, middle of the pack, this, that, the other thing. They go 5-5. Five and five, but they were 3-5 and five at one point and basically needed a miracle at Florida. The kid throws the shoe, sets up the game-winning field goal, and then you barely beat Ole Miss in a driving rainstorm to finish 5-5 five and five when he easily could have finished 3-7. and seven. Beyond that, though, it was how you played and, and, and who you did it against. They, they lost to Mississippi State. They lost to Missouri. Uh, they got embarrassed by Alabama at home. 
and it was specifically the defense. And this was the reason that I, I had no idea what to make of this game coming in. Last year, LSU, I don't think a lot of people realize this. Last year, LSU finished out of all the Power 5 teams. They had the second worst defense of every Power 5 team in college football. Worse than Kansas. Yes, Kansas. Worse than Syracuse. Worse than Georgia Tech. Worse than Washington State. Worse than Vanderbilt. They were worse than Vanderbilt. Only Ole Miss gave up more yards than LSU last year in a 5-5 five and five season. But in Coach O's defense, there were a lot of things working against him. And trust me, I think we all knew publicly it was going to be an uphill battle for him. First of all, you lose 14 players off maybe the greatest championship team that we've ever seen in college football. 14 players, excuse me, 14 players that got drafted by the NFL. Big difference. They didn't lose 14 players. 14 guys were drafted by the NFL. That includes Joe Burrow. That includes Clyde Edwards-Alaire. That includes Justin Jefferson. 14 players overall, five first-round draft picks. That's a lot to overcome. On top of that, you have a couple guys opt out, most notably Jamar Chase, the best wide receiver in college football the year before. You have your two star coordinators leave. As I mentioned, Joe Brady leaves to go to the Carolina Panthers. Dave Aranda goes to be the head coach at Baylor. And then on top of all that, you don't have a spring practice. And so you have all these new players. You have all these new coaches, and you don't have time to implement everything. And so you have this disastrous 3-5 and five season, but again, you kind of have those built-in excuses to say, yeah, we shouldn't have lost this game. Yeah, we shouldn't have lost that game. We did, but give me this offseason, we'll get it figured out. And that was basically Coach O's uh, you know, mission and his, his public statement since last season ended. Last year was bad, but it was Bo Pelini's fault. I lost a bunch of players. I just need an offseason. Things will get back to normal. And it's pretty clear from Saturday night that things are not back to normal and things are not better. And it's not to say that they can't get fixed, right? And that, that's one important element of this. I was talking about this on my Fox Sports Radio show on Saturday night. Uh, there's an old saying, and I'm going to apply it to college football. The SEC giveth and the SEC taketh away. The SEC giveth and the SEC taketh away. And essentially what I'm saying is, yeah, it's really bad for LSU right now, but they also have plenty of time to make this up. I mean, they do still have Florida on the schedule. Auburn on the schedule, Texas A&M on the schedule, Kentucky, who, oh, by the way, actually looked really, really, really good on Saturday with Will Levis, the quarterback. We'll get to him later on in the show. Um, you know, you have opportunities, Alabama. You can make up for what happened on Saturday. The problem is you also still have Alabama, Texas A&M, Florida, Auburn, a good Kentucky team on the schedule. And based on what we saw on Saturday, I don't think there's any reason to think that you're actually going to take care of most of those teams. Now, maybe you beat Auburn because they have a first-year head coach. Maybe you beat this team. Maybe you beat that team. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm just telling you, there is not a lot of reason to believe that LSU is going to magically sw flip a switch and start beating all of the good teams that remain on their schedule, most notably the ones that you need to to consider to be have a good season, Texas A&M and Alabama. And so with it, it raises the question of what is the future of Ed Orgeron. And I'll just say this with Coach O. I was really hoping that I was right and everybody else was wrong on Coach O. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, really as soon as that national championship season ended, I think everybody kind of started saying, oh, was it really Coach O? Or was it Joe Burrow? Was it Joe Brady? Was it all those superstar players? Was it the players and the staff? Or was it Coach O? And I was one of those guys, come on, give Coach O credit. He's changed. I saw him at Ole Miss. He's a different guy. I wanted to believe the, the, the narrative that he was just a different guy and things were so much better and he was going to be, ch he's changed and he's delegated and he's this and he's that. I wanted to believe it. 
Because you know what? I like Coach O. I'm just going to say it. I like Coach O. And on top of liking Coach O, I think he's good for college football. I don't think it's good that everybody kind of walks the same, talks the same, is the same. Nobody says anything interesting. Nick Saban, he just yells and screams. Great coach, just yells and screams. Kirby Smart, Jimbo Fisher, they don't really say that much. Lincoln Riley, what's the most interesting thing that he's ever said? Ryan Day? I don't think I've ever even heard him speak. And so I bring all this up to say Coach O is college football. He's dynamic. He's interesting. He's fun. He fits that culture. And I was hoping that he was going to work. But I think we're getting an increasingly big sample size that it really was those players, Joe Burrow and all the players that I've mentioned, and it wasn't Coach O. And I hate to say that, but since Joe Burrow and all them left, LSU, 5-6 and six overall, and like I said, not only 5-6 and six overall, but they lost to teams that LSU should never lose to. They got destroyed by Mississippi State in their opener last season, and Mississippi State has basically been a disaster since. They lost to Missouri, giving up 50-something points to Missouri. They lost to UCLA in which they were outcoached, outschemed, and outplayed. That's on Coach O. That's on Coach O. And here's the scary part. I thought up until Saturday, I thought there was a segment of the fan base that was kind of like, yeah, but let's give him this season to see what happened. Well, that segment of the fan base is officially gone, or I think the vast majority of them are, because again, you can't use, lose to UCLA in the manner that you did if you're Coach O after an entire offseason where you said, I got this under control, I'm going to fix it. I think the fan base has turned on Coach O, and I'll just tell you this. As somebody who loves college sports and the politics and the dynamics around it, I think there's a lot of things working against Coach O going forward. Most notably, the current AD, first of all, he makes $9 million a year, okay? This blew me away. Last, last week, a couple of days ago, when Jimbo Fisher signed that extension for $9 million a year, we got a list of the highest paid coaches in college football. Coach O is number two or three. Now, he took a, a rookie salary, basically. He took the league minimum in the SEC to get his foot in the door at LSU, but when he won that national championship, they basically quadrupled his pay to almost $9 million a year from a report that I saw. If that's true, you can't be losing to UCLA at $9 million a year. Beyond that, though, remember this. The AD that is currently at LSU, Scott Woodward, is not the guy that hired Coach O. The AD that hired Coach O was a guy named Joe Oliva, who is long gone, and let's be blunt, the only reason Coach O got the job in the first place was because Tom Herman didn't want it, because Tom Herman leveraged LSU to get the Texas job. And so when you factor that in, the AD that didn't hire him, is the AD that hired him is no longer there. The fan base, I don't think, ever really wanted him, but kind of got stuck with him because there were no better options. And here's the other thing. The AD that they have right now, Scott Woodward, excuse me, that guy doesn't play. That guy is here to win championships. You could argue he is the most aggressive AD in all of college athletics. This is the guy that this offseason went out and hired Kim Mulkey away from Baylor, multiple-time national championship winning coach to come to LSU. Beyond that, when he was at Texas A&M, he was the guy that got Jimbo Fisher, a national championship winning coach, to leave Florida State for Texas A&M. He's the guy, when he was at Washington, that got Chris Peterson to leave uh, Boise State after all those years to go to Washington. This guy is a big game hunter. He goes after the best of the best, and he goes after coaches that can deliver championships. And I don't know that the LSU fan base, and I don't know that Coach uh, that Scott Woodward on today, this morning, when he woke up, feels that Coach O can be that guy anymore. And here's the interesting thing. It's not as though there are not names that would be very appealing to the LSU fan base. Tell you a quick side story, funny story. I called a buddy of mine who was an LSU fan after, uh, after the game on Saturday night. He was obviously very upset. You know the first thing he says? We got to go get Hugh Freeze. We got to go get Hugh Freeze. And I was like, Hugh Freeze? Oh, my goodness. 
Well, do a quick Twitter search, Hugh Freeze LSU. You're going to find some results. That, that'd, be, that'd be pretty big. There's only, as best as I can tell, there are only three guys right now in college football that have ever beaten Alabama three times or more than twice or more than once. Let me tell you this again. There are only three guys that have beaten Alabama more than once since Nick Saban got there. Gus Malzahn, Dabo Sweeney, and Hugh Freeze. And here's the thing. Hugh Freeze even talked about it on this podcast. He said, look, you know, I do the things that I do because I feel like I have never had the players to compete. He didn't have L- – imagine what Hugh Freeze could do with LSU-type talent. Are you kidding me? So all I'm saying is Hugh Freeze is available. Billy Napier, the Louisiana coach, is right down the road in Lafayette. I know they got smoked by Texas on Saturday, but he looks like an awfully good candidate. He looks like an awfully good candidate, young, dynamic. He's interviewed for other jobs. He's been offered SEC jobs and turned them down, so it's not as though there are not candidates there. So as I said, I don't want to keep going because I want to get to Clemson, Georgia, but I bring this up to very simply say, Coach O, he's feeling the heat. He's got time to figure it out, but he better do it quick because if he does not, I'm just telling you, that AD's going to be ready to move on. The fan base is certainly ready to move on. And it's not as though there are not good candidates available. Woo! Another mega segment for the Air Tour Sports Podcast. This is what I want to do now. I am fired up. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. There's still a lot to talk about. We'll wrap the show. A couple quick topics. Uh, Alabama dominates. Texas dominates. A few other stories. My boy Randy Edsel announces his retirement. We'll get to all that coming up next. All right, everybody, I am back. Uh, good to be back for a second time, third segment of the Aratora Sports Podcast. And if, if you're new to this show this fall, what I'll tell you is this. These Monday episodes are going to be a lot of recapping college football and basically just talking about the weekend that was so much happens on a college football Saturday that most of these these Monday shows, we're not going to talk a ton of other stuff. We're not going to have a ton of guests. It is just going to be reaction because there is no better sport to react to than college football. But I'll also say now that we are going to three episodes a week, we have plenty of time to get into other stuff. Just as an example, this week, Shaden Sharp, the number one high school basketball player in America, will commit. You know, I'll be talking about that. I will also have a mega guest on Friday's episode. I think the plan, and I'll reiterate this at the end of the show, this week we'll go Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and then next week we'll go Monday, Wednesday, Friday in terms of three episodes of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. But let's continue with college football, and what I'll do now is just hit some quick reaction. We spent a ton of time on Clemson, Georgia. We spent a ton of time on LSU, UCLA. So I just want to get to some other things that that caught my eye in college football. The first one, uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Not sure if you, sh- if you saw, but they completely dominated Miami final score 44-13. to And if you listen to last week's episodes, you should not be surprised by this. I, listen, here's the thing with me. I don't get a lot of things right. I don't get all these things right. But the one thing that I always tell you, every single year we come in and say, well, this team might be able to, and that team might be. Uh, uh, Alabama in game one, week one, is as safe of a bet as there is, and it was going to be no different in this game. It's not as though they have not played major marquee opponents to start the season. And I understand that there's this criticism that they don't leave the South and they don't play true road games like LSU did this year. But at the same time, it's not as though they're not playing great competition. They've beaten Florida State in this season opener. A few years ago, Florida State was number three in the country. Alabama beat them 24-7. to They've beaten um, you know, uh, uh, USC in this game, Michigan in a season opener, Wisconsin in a season opener, and now Miami's the latest. 44 to 13. 
I'm not surprised this happened. I'm not surprised it went down the way that it did uh, because, one, Alabama's a really good team. Two, they are really good in season openers. And three, as I told you, for all the focus on the quarterback, never forget this was a team that was returning eight starters off the defensive side of the ball that was the number one scoring defense in the SEC last year. Now, there was a little bit of bad news coming out of this game. Christopher Allen, a really elite linebacker for Alabama, hurt got hurt late in the game. He could very well be out for the rest of the season. He was an all-SEC linebacker last year. That is a negative. That is something we will have to monitor going forward and see how it impacts Alabama. But on the positive side, I don't think there's anything else you could say other than that Bryce Young, I think, exceeded all expectations. 27 of 38, 344 yards passing, four touchdowns for him in his, uh, not only his season debut, but his Alabama debut. And it just looks like the next guy in line. And one thing that I really wasn't all that concerned about, I know there was a lot of talk about all the turnover on the offensive side of the ball, the fact that Steve Sarkeesian left, and we will talk about Steve Sarkeesian in a minute. But the one thing that stood out to me was, one, you're bringing in Bill O'Brien, a former NFL head coach as your offensive coordinator, and two, the system, it changes every year in terms of assistant coaches, and as long as Nick Saban is, is there, nothing really changes that much, right? We've gone from Lane Kiffin to uh, to Steve, sorry, to Brian Dable, never forget Brian Dable, who's now the star offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, was there for a year, to Steve Sarkeesian, now to Bill O'Brien, haven't missed a beat. Same thing on the defensive side of the ball. Kirby Smart to Jeremy Pruitt to Pete Golding have not missed a beat. Loved what I saw from Alabama. Think they're dominant. They were. They should be the number one team in the country coming into the year. I still have Georgia winning the national championship, but I don't think you can deny that Alabama was the best-looking team uh, I, I, probably out of anybody of the marquee teams on week one. Really quick on Miami, I don't really have that much to say. I think they are what they are. I think they're a third to fourth tier team in college football. As I've said for a while now, I think there are three teams right at the top, Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson. There's another tier right below them that is trying to catch them, Oklahoma, Georgia, Notre Dame. And then there's that third tier with teams that are good, but not even in that second tier, like a Penn State, like a uh, Oregon, like a, maybe a North Carolina, although they didn't look like it. And I think Miami at best is that team. I also think it's worth noting, and I, I tweeted it the other day, and I think people agree with me, I think Miami last year was built up early because they beat a lot of bad teams in marquee games when none of the other leagues were playing. And I think that's worth noting with Miami. Remember, Miami and the ACC were one of the few leagues to kick off right around Labor Day last year. Uh, the SEC didn't start until September 26th. The Big Ten didn't start until the end of October. The Pac-12 didn't start until the middle of November. And so the ACC was the only conference essentially playing. And so those late Saturday night games, it was like Miami for three weeks in a row. They played Louisville and destroyed them. They played Florida State and destroyed them. And it was because they beat bad teams early when everybody else was watching that we thought Miami was good. I think they've been overrated since then. Never forget last year, the two best teams that they played all year, Clemson and North Carolina, they got destroyed by. I am not a Miami guy. don't think they're very good. I want to move on. I just mentioned Steve Sarkeesian. And let me just say this. I thought there were really only two teams in college football this year, this weekend, that looked significantly better than I was expecting 
at least teams that played really good competition. Now, we'll get to Kentucky in a minute. I thought they looked much better than I was expecting, but at the same time, you're playing ULM, Louisiana Monroe, hard to make, a, you know, hard to figure out what to make of that. But in terms of teams that looked way better than I was expecting, there were two. The first one is Texas, and, I, and I'm hesitant to give them too much credit. I don't want to do the whole, is Texas back thing? Like, no, but at the same time, let's never forget, they were playing a really good Louisiana team on Saturday, and they largely dominated them. They won 38-18, to 18, and it was a game that if you watched, it was never really competitive. Texas was able to basically do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They went 10-15 for 15 on third down, uh, 435 yards of total offense, almost 200 yards rushing, and it had a lot of that UCLA feel that I was just talking about a minute ago where they had the balance, they kept Louisiana off their toes, and Louisiana, again, is a good team that I think is frankly better than a lot of the teams in the Big 12 that Texas is going to play. I know it sounds blasphemous, but there's a reason that Louisiana was ranked coming into this season. They were 10-1 last year. They won at Iowa State. They returned basically everybody, including one of the best defensive backfields off of one of the best pass defenses in college football, and Steve Sarkeesian's team picked him apart. So I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I'm not going to do the whole Texas is back thing. Texas has a big game at Arkansas this weekend. Very easily could lose that game. But at the same time, I got to give them credit because – this is Texas, and we know how Texas is, uh, especially in season openers. Remember, they lost to Maryland two years in a row under Tom Herman. Um, and, and, you know, they're just a program that has not been able to get out of their own way. So to come in game one, season one of a new regime, look pretty smooth, pretty confident, take care of the football, don't do anything stupid, don't beat yourself. It was very surprising. We will see what happens with Arkansas this weekend, but they were one team that really impressed me. The other team that really impressed me in a way that I was not expecting was actually Florida State. And I know Florida State lost to Notre Dame, and a couple things on that game, by the way. One, Brian Kelly, we can stop the fake outrage. Nobody was really that mad. For people who missed it, he basically was asked after the game about the team. He said, uh, I I'm in favor of execution. I'd like to execute my whole team right now. It was a playoff, an old John McKay joke. John McKay delivered it much better than Brian Kelly did. But listen, stop pretending that you're outraged. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, I have delivered terrible jokes on this podcast. Doesn't mean that I, everyone needs to yell and scream. It happens. Two, the other big story out of Florida State was Mackenzie Milton, the UCF Central Florida transfer who tore up his knee in a way that people thought he might never be able to walk again after two years away from football played in this game and actually was pretty good down the stretch but Florida State was actually a team that I came away more impressed with even though they lost I said it in the lead-up show last weekend I said look Florida State I've been hearing for years that they have the players and they recruit well enough and they're going to flip the switch at some point I need to see it well I do think I saw it on on, on Sunday night because I thought at times they were every bit as good as uh, as good as the Notre Dame team they were playing and Notre Dame, of course, Brian Kelly's been there forever. They have an established culture. Notre Dame admittedly lost a lot off last year's team, but I was just still very impressed by what I saw from Florida State, which actually finished with more total yards than Notre Dame did. Um, but it's also worth noting they also had three turnovers, one of which was a scoop and score, and that ultimately ended up being the difference in this game in terms of why Florida State lost was because they gave up that defensive touchdown uh, to Notre Dame. Now, what I want to say about Florida State, the other thing that stood out to me, 
they are a great example of an uh, you know an evolving trend in college football, and that is this. That is the evolving trend in college football is a program that is using the transfer portal to their benefit. That was what stood out when I was watching that game. And you guys know I have talked a ton about the transfer portal on this podcast. I was not initially in favor of the one-time transfer rule. I still probably am not. But one, it's created a ton of content, especially in basketball, where you have guys that can come in and make an immediate impact. But two, it's clear that there are programs that are going to use it to their advantage and there are programs that are going to complain about it and whine that the old way, why, why are we changing this? And you're either, going to, you're either going to get adapt or get left behind. We're going to talk about Randy Edsel in a minute. But the time that I knew UConn was in trouble with Randy Edsel was two or three years ago. He lost about 8, 10, 12, 15 players to the transfer portal. And rather than saying, you know what? The transfer portal works both ways. We have an opportunity to go get difference makers. You know what he did? He yelled and screamed and complained like an old man yelling in the cloud. And that's when I knew they were in trouble. Florida State, on the other hand, I bring all this up because I'm watching that game. Think about who was the difference makers for Florida State. Mackenzie Milton, quarterback, UCF, transfer. Jayshon Corbin, who was the leading rusher for Florida State in that game, was a transfer from Texas A&M. Their best defensive player, Jermaine Johnson, who you may remember from Last Chance U, Independence University with James James Brown or Jason Brown, the head coach at Independence. Um, he was their best defensive player. He was at Georgia last year. And so Florida State, I think, is going to get back quicker. In large part, I think they're really well coached with Mike Norvell, but they have embraced the transfer portal. So shout out to Florida State. I think they're ahead of where I thought they would be at this point uh, under, the Mike, under the Mike Norvell era. Couple other things I want to get to. Just spend a minute on these games. Penn State, Wisconsin. I know it was a top 15 matchup. Uh, pretty sloppy game, but credit to Penn State for winning this one, man. Wisconsin was dominating early. They had two trips to the red zone early, came away with zero points in those two red zone trips. And so when you talk about a team that probably was not the better team on Saturday afternoon over, four, over 60 minutes, Penn State was not the better team, but credit to them. They had a few big plays. They finished with 250 yards of total offense. 150 yards came on three plays. Um, and so you look at Penn State, they were resilient, they were tough, and they found a way to win. For Wisconsin, you can't turn the ball over. You got to take care of the football. And I'm just telling you, their quarterback, Graham Mertz, he had a great opening game a few years ago against Illinois and basically has been living off that game since. I don't believe him. I don't I don't believe in him. I don't buy in him. Wisconsin, I think, again, is going to be a really good defense that struggles to move the ball through the air. And if you struggle to move the ball through the air, you're not going to be able to run the ball either. Credit Penn State. I would also say from the game of this perspective, if you're Ohio State watching that game, you got to feel really good. Because Ohio State goes on the road, beats Minnesota in a true road game at night, opening night. And then the two best teams in the conference on paper, Wisconsin and Penn State, do not look very formidable. Uh, and with that, we'll transition to the other Big Ten game, Iowa-Indiana, because I think there a lot of people came out of this weekend thinking that it might be Iowa who is actually the best team in the Big Ten. They take care of Indiana very easily. They take care of Indiana on Saturday afternoon. The game was in Ames for or not Ames excuse me that's Iowa State it was in Iowa City but they went 34 to 6 as Iowa wins and all I'll say really quick on Iowa I think it's something worth worth noting because they go on the road they play Iowa State this weekend Iowa State's a really good team um, Iowa had two pick sixes in this game and so when you look at this game they went 34 to 6 you think oh my goodness they're amazing 
and then you realize they got 14 points off pick sixes, that probably isn't going to happen again. And if they don't get 14 points off pick sixes, uh, it's a 20-6 to final score instead of 34-6, to and you feel differently. I am a little less bullish on Iowa than everybody else. I want to see them against Iowa State. But listen, your defense creates 14 points. I'm not here to criticize you. Uh, Iowa gets the win. Last little note before I get to Randy Edsel. I don't really want to talk about Randy Edsel, but I will. Um, how about Kentucky? I mean, Kentucky, Will Levis, Wandale Robinson, and the new offensive coordinator, Liam Cohen. You know, all offseason, for people who don't follow Kentucky football, they've been this really good program on the brink, 10-win season a few years ago, but the offense was so bad. Eddie Grand, the offensive coordinator, they ran the ball, they, they, they played this very conservative approach, and, and who really knows how much of it was on the coordinator, how much of it was on Mark Stoops, but even if some of it was on Mark Stoops, Credit for Mark Stoops for saying, I got to open this thing up because we are not playing a brand of football that is going to be successful in modern college football. Goes out, hires this guy, Liam Cohen, uh, an assistant coach with the Los Angeles Rams. And in night one, I mean, it is just fireworks. Now, again, Kentucky was playing Louisiana Monroe again. Uh, Kentucky will open SEC play this weekend against Missouri. So we're going to find out quick if Louisiana Monroe was just that bad or Kentucky was improved. But when you talk about a Kentucky football team putting up 554 yards of total offense, 419 passing yards, including a bunch of deep balls. By the way, for those scoring at home, that's 13 yards per completion for Kentucky football. This was one of the true surprises of week one. Is it sustainable? I don't know. Was it Louisiana Monroe? Maybe a little bit. But this offense clearly looks different. Mark Stoops is clearly willing to put the, the offense in the, into the hands of Liam Cohen. And they look really dynamic. Fascinated to see them against Missouri this weekend. But what I would also say, uh, Wandale Robinson is about as good of a playmaker as Kentucky has had for a while. I know they just had Benny Snell a few years ago, but Benny Snell, uh, great between the tackles. I don't think he was quite as good in the open field as Wandale Robinson. Really good player, uh, you know, and you look at what he can do with Will Levis, Josh Ali, all these guys that they have. You add a vertical passing game to the run game, to the defense. I think there's a very good chance this is the second best team in the SEC East and probably a team that finishes, uh, you know, with, with with potentially eight, nine wins, depending on how things go. Finally, I do want to wrap with one pseudo big story, and that is that we have our first movement on the college football coaching carousel. That is right. There is a shakeup at UConn as Randy Edsel. Uh, first of all, remember, Randy Edsel, uh, I, I yelled and screamed about this last week. But Randy Edsel, UConn, UConn doesn't play last year. They come back in week zero. They play at Fresno State. They lose 45-0. I promised you it was the last time I was going to talk about UConn football. I only talked about UConn football because of the fact that uh, the only reason I talked about UConn football was because of the fact that there was no other games in week zero worth discussing. I wasn't going to talk about them again, but then a couple things. One, they lost to Holy Cross, an FCS team, on Saturday. And let me be clear, Holy Cross isn't even a top 25 team in the FCS, and UConn lost to them. And two, on top of that, if you watch the game, and I was probably the only one watching it, um, you know, UConn athletically, size-wise, skill-wise, looked no better than Holy Cross. Like, from an athleticism, size, strength standpoint, uh, Holy Cross, the FCS team, looked about the same as UConn, and that was when he kind of realized, okay, 
this is not sustainable. This is not going to work. Something has to change. And I tweeted it. I tweeted as much. Uh, Randy Edsel's got to go. I don't care how it happens. I don't care how it goes down. This guy is not the long-term answer at UConn. And apparently my, my prayers were answered as on Sunday it was announced that Randy Edsel would retire at the end of this season. And it appeared as though very much that it was a forced retirement because it's worth noting I, I had not seen Randy Edsel's name, UConn, in any of the preseason hot seat lists. It seemed like he was going to get through this year into next year when uh, you know his contract became a little bit different. There was no indication that he wanted to retire. So you kind of wondered right away, one, is this a forced retirement? And then two, on top of that, um, you know, uh, what, what, the, what the dynamics behind it were. And then we find out on Monday that, oh, by the way, it's not now a retirement. Randy Edsel is quitting effective immediately. And so with Randy Edsel, I think there's a few things to say. One, he was at UConn a while ago, and he was really great for that program. I don't ever want to take away what he did in his first time around. I don't ever want to take away the fact that he built the program from an FCS program to an FBS program. I don't want to take away the fact that, um, you know, that, that the program was on really stable ground when he left. As I said the other day, four straight bowl games to end his first tenure, including a Fiesta Bowl, obviously the high of UConn football in basically the history of the program. But it's also worth noting that he left under really crappy circumstances the first time. If you'll remember, uh, he they win the bowl game, and essentially that night he flew out to Maryland to accept the Maryland coaching job when Ralph Friedgen left. Uh, it's worth noting for the UConn diehards, you'll remember this, they had an NFL running back named Jordan Todman who was declaring for the draft. Randy Edsel makes him get up in front of the team and tell the team that he is leaving, that it is final game. And then Randy Edsel sneaks out the side door and takes the Maryland job. And so he left under lousy circumstances the first time. And I'll say this again. He left under even worse circumstances the second time. This is embarrassing and this is inexcusable. And let me explain why. As I said a minute ago, Randy Edsel last year, UConn was one of only two programs that played zero college football at the FBS level, okay? Old Dominion was the only one that didn't play a single game. Uh, New Mexico State didn't play in the fall, but they got some games in, in the spring against FCS teams. And you know who was in charge? You know who spearheaded the idea that UConn football shouldn't play? Randy Edsel. And you know who was the person who said publicly that, oh, these guys need another year to get bigger, stronger, faster? Randy Edsel. Well, one, on top of the fact that the on-the-field product was embarrassing – Two, shame on Randy Edsel, because after he left the program, the way that he did the first time, you know what he just did again? He just hijacked another, he just hijacked two seasons away from the current players on his roster, okay? Because just think about what Randy Edsel did to his players. One year ago, he doesn't fight for them. He doesn't say he wants to play. Last year, you can criticize a lot of coaches for a lot of things, but Scott Frost was out there saying, I want to play. Nebraska wants to play. Jim Harbaugh said, Michigan football will be ready to play in two weeks if you're ready. Brian Harson, one of the big reasons why he left Boise for Auburn, besides the fact that it, it's a better job, it's in the SEC, he felt like Boise did not go to bat enough to play last season. All these coaches wanted to play. Randy Edsel bails on the season, says it's for the players. Then this year, bails on the exact same players as he retires. 
I think it's unacceptable. I think it's totally inexcusable. You only get four to five years to play college football. This guy just hijacked two seasons from these kids because last year they didn't play, and this year he's quitting on them in two games in. So if you if you want to retire at the end of the year, that's fine. If you don't think you're good enough or if the AD doesn't think you're good enough, you get fired. But to quit and walk out right now is embarrassing. I'm over Randy Edsel. Now with that said, let's get into the UConn football program because a lot of, I've, I've heard two things. UConn stinks. They should move to FCS. They'll never be the same. What I'll say is this. First of all, they're not moving to the FCS, okay? Studies have been done. I talked about this when UConn went to the Big East two years ago, but studies have been done. And the money that you will lose in donations ends up being much greater than the money that you spend on FBS football, even as an independent. Studies have been done. It's a fact. It's indisputable. Two, UConn has actually been able to schedule pretty decently. They got Purdue coming to town this weekend, which is not a marquee game, but it's a Big Ten opponent coming to UConn this weekend. I would also say you get that one big road game a year, Clemson, Ohio State, Michigan, whomever, that pays a lot of bills in the athletic department, and so they're not going to the FCS level because you're going to lose a bunch of money, and you're going to lose those big money out-of-conference games with the Ohio State's Clemson, which they play later this year, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, whoever. Uh, those are all games that you're going to lose if you go to the FCS level. So UConn will be staying at the FBS level. And then two, on top of that, what I would also say is this. I hear a lot of people say, oh, it's a terrible program. It'll never – okay, I get it. UConn football will probably never go to a quote-unquote BCS bowl game, a New Year's Six bowl game ever again. I accept that. So do most UConn fans. At the same time, you cannot tell me that there is not a coach out there that can get them to 6-6 six and six in any given year with respectability and get to a mediocre bowl game. And UConn fans, I believe, are realistic, okay? UConn fans are not asking for 9-3. and three. UConn fans are not asking for 10-2. and two. UConn fans are not asking to go to Clemson and complete with, compete with Clemson. But can you get us to six wins and get us to a bowl game? I believe it can happen. I believe there are enough dynamic young head coaches out there that just want an opportunity. A um, lot of great play callers. It's ironic that I, I brought up Liam Cohen, the Kentucky play caller, uh, because he is from the New England area, and Bruce Feldman listed him as a potential candidate. I don't think he's going to go to UConn. I think he's an SEC coordinator. He's going to probably get paid better, and he's going to wait for a better opportunity. But it doesn't change the fact that somebody is out there, whether it is some kind of offensive play caller, some kind of assistant coach, coordinator at the Power 5 level, or an FCS coach looking to break in at the FBS level. UConn is still a, a state school with state funding, 40,000-seat stadium. And I'm just telling you, I know it's an independent, but I'm telling you, it is not anywhere close to the worst job in Power 5 football or in, in, in FBS football, okay? How many max schools can get Big Ten, ACC, uh, uh, you know, Big Ten, ACC, Big 12 schools into their home stadium? Well, UConn's doing it. They had Indiana a few years ago. They got Purdue this year. They got North Carolina coming to town a few. UConn is getting good home games relative to the competition, and you just got to go 6-6. Six and six. You just got to go to a bowl game, and you can do it. And so I think in this era, with the one-time transfer rule, with the transfer portal era, that's the other factor too. You can upgrade your roster really quickly. It's funny, I was talking to a Tennessee fan over the weekend, and we were talking about how I think the reason Josh Heupel can have success is because I think he's going to be able to get a lot of skill position guys to Tennessee because playing time is available. And so if you get the right coach, young, dynamic, uh, offensively uh, inclined, and then you go hit that portal where there's a bunch of kids that just want the opportunity to play, I'm telling you, 
UConn can turn around from probably the, the least talented roster in F FBS football to at the very least respectable and maybe 6-6. Six and six. So Randy Edsel, it was time to go. He left the program in an embarrassing fashion for the second straight time. I'm appreciative of what he did previously, but it was time for him to head out. Whew. All right, I think that's it. I think we are done with this episode of the Aratora Sports Podcast. Uh, before we get out of here, a few notes. One, like I said, a little bit of a quirky schedule this week. We are going to uh, have Monday or Tuesday, Thursday, Friday this week. Obviously, because of the holiday, it all got pushed back. So Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. And then from there, uh, beyond Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, next week we will go back to Monday, Wednesday, Friday, also worth noting, mega guest on Friday. You will want the alarm bells on there. When I say one of the two to three most prominent guests that we have ever had on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I'm not kidding you, okay? Uh, I am not kidding you in terms of the marquee guest that we are having on Friday. So before we get out of here, I want to remind you, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. We are back. You guys are awesome. Thank you for the support. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I will be back on Thursday with another episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.